Okay, I think um, we're going to go ahead and get started. So my name is Dr. David Wiles, and I'm going to kind of co-chair all the sessions today with Dr. Peters. Um, but to start off this morning, we're going to have Dr. Susanna Nagy, assistant professor from Duke University, talk to you, kind of do an HCV 101, if you will, kind of run through the basics and, and lay some of the foundation for what we'll talk about later during the day. So uh, I think without further ado, I'll just let Susanna come up and uh, talk to you all. Thank you very much. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Does the mic sound like it's on? So I'm actually going to stand down here only because I get bored looking at that podium, so I'm pretty sure you'll get bored looking at me behind that podium at some point in the next 45 minutes. So I'm going to stand down here, and, um, and, and in part because this is an optional, as you guys know, an optional overview. So for those of you who woke up early this morning to come sit and listen to me talk for 45 minutes, I appreciate that. Um, and the main point is, is as we move through the day, you're going to hear a lot of lingo that if you're not an, an, an active HCV treater, may kind of sound like a foreign language to you. And so we got some feedback pretty early on in doing these full-day workshops that some of this lingo really needed to be kind of spelled out in, in advance. So we're hoping that this can kind of get everyone up to speed um, as we move forward through the day and start talking about the newer agents and investigational agents, et cetera. So thank you very much for being here. In addition, so I have, you know, 42 slides for 45 minutes. We also then have a 10-minute, I think, question and answer period. And I think it's a lot more interesting and fun if, if you guys have questions as we go through this to actually ask questions as we go, as opposed to saving them for the Q&A because it's 45 minutes is a long time. So you may forget what question you even had. Um, and also, if you have that question, someone else probably has the same question. And so we can kind of work through it and go through this together. Because the point of this really um, I, I don't have any agenda other than to try to provide you some information that is helpful throughout the rest of the day. Um, so with that, um, I think you have a copy of my disclosure slide, um, learning objectives, um, and then we do have a question that um, we would like for you to, 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 to uh, like a testing question that we'd like for you to take now. The question is the IL-28 single nucleotide polymorphism is a research test of spontaneous clearance, a clinical test of treatment response, a research test of level of fibrosis, or a clinical test of level of fibrosis in an HCV-infected patient. Um, so I bet I have to click to get you to be able to... Uh... There you go. And so this question will come back up at the end. Um, so I'm not allowed to tell you the answer, otherwise you'll get 100%, which might make me look good, but then doesn't let us know how much you learned. So um, excellent. Uh, so let's move forward, and we'll come back to that. So the objectives, again, are really to quickly review epidemiology of HCV, the HCV virus as a whole, some basic, very quick virology, the drug targets um, for the DAA's viral kinetics, which are something that if you're a treater, um, has changed a bit over time. And so just reviewing some of these uh, viral kinetic markers that we use in terms of treatment the prior standard of care, piglet interferon and ribavirin, and just discussions on that and, and, and kind of some of the differences that we saw there and where the needs are moving forward. Quick review of some of the, the phase two studies of telaprevir and bisoprevir in particular, just to point out some of the things that we learned from those phase two studies and how we ended up with the phase two studies that we did. And then very quickly, some of these pharmacogenomic markers um, that um, you could qu query as to the clinical relevance at this point in time. Um, and so, the basic epidemiology, as you know, this is a very prevalent um, infection globally, and just a recent report in hepatology suggesting that probably somewhere now over 180 million people infected worldwide. The numbers in the U.S. came back at about 4.4 million, um, somewhere pr pretty close to where we, we expected. Um, as you know, there are six different genotypes. We primarily see one um, in this country. It's about 85% of our patient population. Yes, ma'am. So this has to do with um, exposures at that time due to a medical intervention, um, and that's why genotype 4 was, is the primary genotype in, in Egypt um, and is highly prevalent there. Yeah, so that, that's the, the reason for that exposure was a, me, was a medical exposure from vaccination. Yeah. So the epidemiology of HCV, so, so as you know, um, the primary reason for exposures to HCV quite a ways back was exposure from medical blood products as well as IV drug use. And with the um, recognition of HCV, the ability to detect HCV in blood products, we saw a significantly de significant decrease in acute HCV infections once we were able to screen blood products um, in patients. Uh, however, we, as many of you know, now have several outbreaks of acute HCV infection going on in this country, in particular in HIV-positive 
MSM, men who have sex with men. So, you know, some clear changes in terms of recommendations for screening for HCV in our HIV-infected MSM population who continue to have high-risk sexual activities or in HIV-infected patients as a whole who continue to have high-risk sexual activities. So ongoing screening as opposed to that kind of thought of screened once when they enter the clinic and, and don't think about it much again. Um, what we also know is that uh, we have a number of patients in this country with HCV who do not recognize that they have the infection. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about how the CDC and other groups are attempting to increase the awareness of HCV in our country in specific populations and try to expand this knowledge of chronic infection. So in, in the U.S., we know that there is a disparity in terms of the um, chronicity of HCV infection. And again, in the U.S., the recent report just came out saying somewhere between 1.3 to 1.6 percent of our um, population is infected with HCV, but we see that there is a clear disparity among specific risk groups. In particular, people that were born between 1945 and 65. I won't ask for a show of hands in the group on how many of you meet that criteria, but we do have some acute HCV testing right out front uh, when you leave the building. No, just kidding. Um, but uh, so, so this is a clear risk group. And then if you look specifically at patients of African descent and men of African descent, we see that these are high, high risk groups who carry a significant burden of this disease. So interestingly, if you look at the previous CDC recommendations and guidelines for HCV screening and testing, as well as the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, we, there was a prior focus on high-risk individuals, uh, generally which these groups did not meet. Um, so these were patients who had prior uh, exposure to blood products, prior to screening of blood products, patients who reported a history of IV drug use, et cetera. Um, and what we know is that using that screening, we've identified a minority of people who are chronically infected with HCV in this country. So with an attempt to expand this recognition, the CDC, as many of you probably know, um, have recently suggested that all patients born between 1945 and 65, this birth cohort, quote-unquote baby boomers, uh, be screened and tested at least once in their lifetime at this point. Obviously, there is a difference in terms of the recommendations by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which has given this a Class C recommendation at this point in time, although it's not yet been finalized. Um, but this is something that, that certainly we push for in terms of attempting to identify more of these 50 to 75 percent of patients who have chronic infection and don't know. So I, I suspect most of you um, remember the natural history from somewhere along in your education and training of HCV, but um, uh, uh, the patients who develop acute HCV infection, a, a significant majority do go on to develop chronic infection. So spontaneous clearance occurs somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of patients. In the HIV um, cohort, that number has ranged anywhere from 10 and even as low as 5% to 30%. So there may be a difference in, in, in clearance of this um, infection in HIV-infected hosts. Um, and of those patients, a significant minority go on to develop cirrhosis. And those are the patients over some number of years who will then be at risk of all of the complications of significant liver disease, end-stage liver disease, the need for transplantation, hepatocellular carcinoma, and so clearly this is a place we do not want our patients to get. Um, and ultimately attempting to identify who's at risk of developing cirrhosis and attempting to treat them as quickly as possible is, is, is I think, an critically important part of this. And obviously we know that our HIV-infected patients do have a higher risk of developing fib uh, significant fibrosis and cirrhosis. So we know in the pre-highly active antiretroviral era, that risk was somewhere around 2.6-fold. We know that in the highly active antiretroviral era, that number has dropped to about 1.7, but still a 70% increased risk as compared to their hep C mono-infected colleagues. And so this becomes an critically important thing for us to think about because of this quote-unquote more rapid progression of disease in the HIV, even well-controlled HIV-infected host. And there have been multiple groups who have looked at various models to predict kind of the... Um, the significant amount of liver disease that is undiagnosed. So if you don't know you have hep C, then you're certainly not going to know that you have liver disease. And although it's a, it's a minority, it's a significant minority. And so there are predictions that somewhere between 2020 to 2030, we're going to see a peak in end-stage liver disease and cirrhosis. And followed with that will be all of the complications, including need for transplantation, hepatocellular carcinoma, et cetera. And so many folks do believe that we have this kind of window of opportunity, especially with improving therapies, to identify these patients determine who needs treatment, and get them on treatment to try to prevent this, um, this, this huge peak of liver disease that, that, that we believe is, is real. 
So now quickly going to turn to the virus itself. There are not any questions so far. Um, so the HCV virus is actually very different than some of the other viruses that we know, HIV, for example, hepatitis B, for example, in that this is a virus that lives completely in the cytoplasm, um, does not have an intranuclear or an integrated phase, and in part we believe that this is why we can cure this virus. Um, so if you look at the various parts of the life cycle, it's the translation and cleavage and replication phases that are the primary focus of these new direct-acting antivirals for HCV. So if we look closer at the HCV virus um, genome, and then ultimately the proteins that are produced in that post-translational and cleavage phase of the life cycle, you see that there are the structural proteins. So these are the proteins that form the virus itself. But then we have multiple non-structural NS proteins. Um, many of these have enzymatic activity. And several of these are the primary site of action of the developing and or FDA-approved direct-acting antivirals. So we have the NS3 uh, and 4A protease, um, which are the protease inhibitors, bosepavir and telapavir being the first uh, FDA-approved in that class. We have the NS5A, which is a protein that does not have known enzymatic activity but has a clear role in the replication complex for this virus and when blocked is a highly potent um, antiviral for HCV. And then we have the NS5B polymerase for which we have nuke and non-nuke um, inhibitors. So a lot of this terminology is obviously, for those of you who do HIV, is, is relatively uh, secondhand because there's a lot of similarities between this and HIV. So we, the, we will go into more detail through the day in these various mechanisms of actions and drugs and kind of where we are in terms of the development for these. But just this is a base, basic introduction to the idea of the mechanism of action for these drugs. So then one more step back, and that's to talk about viral kinetics. Um, because these all have nice you know, acronyms, and we throw them around quite, quite frequently, and it can be a little difficult to, to follow, but these are also critically important when you think about the study populations. Where does your patient fit that you're talking to in terms of being a relapser or a non-responder, a partial responder, a null responder? So let's go through this pretty quickly. So this is looking at responses in someone who has been exposed to interferon and ribavirin previously. So let's talk about a treatment patient on, on interferon and ribavirin. And they have different types of responses. Um, so someone can have a very rapid virologic response. This is an undetectable HCV viral load by week four. <clears throat> they can um, also have what we call partial response. So you see this green line here is a two-log decline from where they started. And a partial responder would be someone who had a greater than two-log decline by week 12, but by week 24, they were not undetectable. So this patient, by the previous old, we call futility rules, would have made the first futility rule of 12 weeks, but by 24 weeks would have been discontinued because they were not undetectable. So those are the old futility rules, what we use with PEG and RIBA. And a null responder, someone who would have been discontinued at week 12 because they didn't even meet that first futility rule of having a greater than two log decline by week 12. And, and these are critical definitions for enrollment into clinical trials. And I think appropriately have been very strict because we want to make sure that we are appropriately classifying and identifying patients to understand their responses to these newer therapies. <clears throat> And then you also have patients who were on therapy, had good responses, met criteria to continue. They were undetectable by week 24. But once they came off of treatment at week 48, they relapsed. And those are relapsed patients. Responded great to therapy, but once off pagan and, and, and I mean, pagan riba, they, um, they relapsed. And then you have the patients, of course, who had great responses, undetectable at 24, end of treatment, and six months down the line at SVR 24, 24 weeks, were still undetectable, and this is what we consider a cure of their HCV infection, which is 98% at this point in recognition that they will remain free of viral infection um, uh, for, their, for their lifetime. Um, so we now use terms SVR4, SVR8, 10, 12, just probably depends on what, um, <laughs> what uh, conference the, uh, the group is aiming for in terms of their presentations. SVR4 tends to be a nice marker for making decisions about um, you know, various steps of clinical trials. If you're in step one and they meet SVR4 criteria, meaning undetectable four weeks after coming off therapy, maybe you make some changes. You can change and shorten treatments, et cetera. Um, SVR12, so undetectable by um, 12 weeks, is shown to be over 90% predictive of SVR24, so is now the new um, uh, outcome that is uh, recognized by the FDA for approval for these uh, uh, DAAs. Um, and uh, and SVR4 has 
uh, an excellent 91 to 92% correlation with SBR24 as well, but not quite as good, obviously, with SBR12, which is why SBR12 is essentially recognized as a clear surrogate for, for cure. Um, so then the last thing I want to mention is this ERVR, or Extended Rapid Virologic Response. And this is something new in the era of DAAs and what we call response-guided therapy. And I'm going to get to some of the history of response-guided therapy and with Pagan and Riba. You know, we were doing this already with Pagan and Riba to some extent, but not um, quite as formally as you saw with the designs of the um, phase, uh, phase three trials for telopavirin in particular. So what this is is a patient who is undetectable by week four, if you're on telaprevir, or week eight, if, you're on, if the patient's on bosepravir, because of that difference of a lead-in phase that I will get into, <clears throat> and then remains undetectable either at week 12 or week 24 to make a decision that that patient has been a very good responder and therefore can have a shortened course of therapy. So this is called meeting ERVR criteria, and this is a term that kind of gets thrown around quite a bit when you look at these clinical clinical trials. So just recognizing that that means those are excellent responders, very rapid viral kinetics, um, and therefore evidence that they, can, that they can do well and achieve cure with a shortened course of therapy. Any questions about those? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I think the longevity of it is at over seven years now in recognizing from the old PEG-RIBA trials that these patients maintain um, uh, co complete clearance. So what happened in those two percent? I mean, for some of them, clearly, those were patients who um, were reinfected, but they didn't have information on being able to identify the differences in those strains. You know, we do have in the DAA some evidence of very late, um, of, of very late relapsers, and part of this maybe is our true lack of understanding if there's reservoir. We don't have clear evidence that there's long-term reservoir with this virus, but there's certainly a, a part of this that we don't fully understand. Uh, but we do believe that a lot of those kind of 2% or higher were people who maybe were reinfected somewhere along that timeline. I do not have that data. There may be folks in the back of the room who do, but I can tell you it happens. I mean, it happens very regularly in patients who have ongoing high-risk uh, behaviors, including IV drug use. I mean, you can clearly be reinfected with this virus um, over and over and over again, given the quasi-species and the differences in the virus. Um, that exists. So, so, so reinfection is critically important and very important for our patients to understand as we're going through the discussions about treatment and cure that they can be re-exposed and reinfected very easily if their behaviors continue. Yeah. Great question. All right. So now we're going to turn quickly to, to PEG and RIBA um, just to talk about some of the things that we learned about that and maybe hopefully through the day you'll see how these things continue to bear out as we move into DAA treatment. So, so as you know, um, treatments uh, varied in terms of length depending on what genotype you were treating. So we know that genotype 2s and 3s were better responders to PEG and RIBA than patients who were genotype 1s or 4s in particular. Um, and, and so you can see here that on average we would say that in a genotype 1 infected patient, mono-infected patient, that the response rate to PEG and RIBA um, was about 40% where you can see in a patient who had genotype 2 or 3, that number was closer to the 80% range. And the standard of care for treatment was, two, was, was, was 6 months or, or 24 weeks in a genotype 2, 3, but 48 weeks on general for a genotype 1. Right. So then if you looked at specific subpopulations in terms of response, we knew that there were specific groups who responded better or worse than others to PEG-based therapies. In particular, patients of African descent had poorer responses to interferon-based therapies. Patients of Asian descent had significantly improved responses to interferon-based therapies. And we'll learn later today on, on why that is, but this was something that was not well understood um, until uh, some, we, we started studying the genetics of uh, responses to treatment. In addition, we know that HIV-infected patients with PEG and RIBA were significantly worse as well compared to hep C mono-infected. And in particular, if you turn and look at the ACTG trial, which is our American population that should more reflect our, our group as opposed to some of the European groups, is that for genotype 1 force, the response rate was 14%. Which is pretty hard a couple of years ago to sit down with a patient and convince them to go through treatment for a year um, when their response rate was going to be on average 14%. Obviously, for twos and threes, the numbers were very, very good. Maybe slightly different than a mono-infected, but not dramatically so. Not, not the way genotype 1, 4. So clearly, our HIV-infected patients need improved therapies. And 
um, you'll learn today that, that it seems as though that gap has essentially completely closed with the addition of a DAA. So then what other treatment predictors are there for PEG and RIBA? <clears throat> and I think you're going to see slides again through the day showing how this is slowly changing. So with PEG and RIBA, we know that if you had a lower viral load, less than 600,000, less than 800,000, you had a better chance at having more rapid viral kinetics and being cured, not only cured, but maybe cured even in a shorter period of time. We know that in patients who had less severe liver fibrosis, so obviously cirrhotics or stage 3s had poorer response to therapies than patients who had less fibrosis. Younger age at the time of infection, female gender. Again, we looked at the non-African-American race, the Asian descent race that's do doing better. And then, of course, some, some other markers of uh, fat in the liver, steatosis, and also insulin resistance and weight, et cetera, were, were clear predictors of, of, of response to treatment. And again, HIV, we, we would put up there. So now let's talk about where the first ideas of response-guided therapy came from. And this was from um, the IDEAL cohort. So the IDEAL study was a study that investigated in genotype 1, mono HCV mono-infected patients, the difference between PEG interferon alpha 2A and 2B. Um, and what they found was that patients who were undetectable very early in their courses of therapy had improved response rates. And patients who took 24 weeks to be undetectable, which still would have met criteria and you would have continued. So those are not partial responders, but people that had a greater than two log decline by week 12 and then took, though, an entire 24 months to become undetectable, had much lower responses to therapy. But this was the first sign that there was a difference in terms of being able to identify viral kinetics and responses to interferon-based therapies. Yes? So that's a great question. Um, and it's a, so, 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 oh, sorry. So the question was, when I say undetectable, what's the number? And so... Actually, Dr. Solkowski may be able to remember what assay. Was it, um, so, so for the ideal study, the lower limit of quant, do you remember? 50, okay. Yeah, so, so these have changed significantly, right? So there's a time where lower limit of quant was 600 and then 50, and now we're down to numbers of 25. And so those numbers do change, and there's actually a very nice article in CID um, that kind of goes into all of the different um, assays um, and we can get that information for you guys if you're interested in looking, looking at it. But it goes into different assays and what these mean. But what we mean by undetectable is, is less than a lower limit of quantification, whatever that test is, and not detected, um, as opposed to just being less than a lower limit of, of quantification but detected. Okay? So, so that is an important um, thing. And so in terms of making decisions for response-guided therapy, you need to have an undetectable, not a less than lower limit of quant detected to make a decision to shorten someone's course of therapy. So, so, so we, to me, week zero or, or time equals zero is, is the you know baseline before the patient starts therapy, and then week one. So I guess what, so week one would be seven days after they start treatment. Okay, so then, yes, yeah, so I would agree. So, so week one would be seven days from their first interferon dose. Week two would be 14 days from their first interferon dose. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and obviously at every place, I mean, the, you know, at the VA where we are using um, DAAs, but it's quite, it's a bit more regulated, we have to have those results back before we can actually get patients renewed. And so we're, many of these patients, their week four is really a, a day 23 or something, um, so, so it's not going to be always dead on, um, depending on what practice setting that you're in. But you want to be as close as possible, obviously. Um, so so there's, there, you do have some room for flexibility, especially with the DEAs. These patients drop pretty fast. Um, and if you have a patient who, you know, on, on day, I don't know, 24 is still 150, then, then you probably have a problem anyway, is what I'd argue. Okay, so the common side effects of PEG and RIBA, I think everyone also recognizes very clearly. Um, but the ones I want to point out here are anemia, which was quite, quite common, um, at 34%. And I think we, many of us didn't maybe recognize as much that ribavirin causes significant hemolytic anemia, but then also the bone marrow suppression from the interferon also really hindered the body's ability to attempt to respond to that anemia. Um, and so it really is a combination of the two that leads to the significant anemia that you see. And then rash, which I think was also something that we 
maybe didn't think of as much, but, but and, and certainly with telaprevir and the issues that, with rash that occurred with telaprevir, there was a lot of education that went into understanding how to educate your patient prior to therapy because rash was pretty common before. And this was an eczematous, very puritic rash that occurred for these patients. And so, you know, there's a lot of education in the beginning that goes into educating your patients into using lotions and making sure that they're applying lotions twice a day, that they're staying well hydrated, things that can try to prevent these rashes from occurring to, to begin with. Um, and we maybe didn't pay as much attention to that as we should have moving into these, uh, these, these studies. So quickly, I want to talk quickly about a, acute HCV infection because this is an area that's going to become even more interesting moving forward. So acute HCV infection, as you know, um, it does occur, but it generally is an asymptomatic presentation. And so for most of these patients, we do not identify them. They don't present to care generally with acute infection. This is the, the nice thing about uh, in our HIV population that we're now screening more frequently. I imagine many of you are picking up some acute cases where patients really are asymptomatic, but you're picking it up because you're monitoring their GI panels and then you're re repeating RNAs or things like that. So, so it is an asymptomatic presentation. We know that there are patients who spontaneously clear, again, anywhere up to 30%. And on average, a majority of these patients will clear within the first 12 weeks. Okay? So when you look at on-treatment responses, these are patients started on PEG and RIBA in the first 12 weeks, in the, in the 12 to 24 weeks following the, the recognition of their acute infection, or after 24 weeks, you can see that the, the biggest benefit appears to be early, but that's because a significant number of these patients probably were going to spontaneously clear. And so the, the current standard would be to offer these patients 12 weeks to see if they spontaneously clear. There are some predictors of spontaneous clearance. So if you have a greater than two long decline in your viral load in the first four weeks of the recognition of your infection, then you have a better chance of spontaneous clearance. If you carry this IL-28 polymorphism, you have a better chance of spontaneous clearance. But ultimately, you might want to give those patients time to spontaneously clear before initiating therapy. Um, and currently, the treatment is platelet interferon arbovirin. Because they, if, we, if we catch a patient early and treat them during the acute phase, we can get numbers in an HIV-infected patient anywhere from 60 to 70 percent. In a mono-infected patient, you can get numbers that are closer really to 80 or even 90 percent. And so this is a critically important part. Now, we don't know in the DAA era if indeed you can get higher cure rates with acute, especially as you see with some of the new drugs, we're getting numbers over 90 percent to begin with. Um, but it, it still becomes very important to try to identify these patients now when some of these DAAs are not necessarily available in all clinics. You had a question. Oh, treating acute hep C with a needle injury? I mean, so, so we, I mean, they're treated with peg and riba at this point in time. Um, was for six months is what, is what our standard uh, continues to be. Um, and, and we do attempt, I mean, if it's an employee, then usually you have the opportunity to get those patients in um, and, and offer them treatment unless they have some contraindication. I will say some patients now, given the landscape, make decisions to go on to chronic and await um, interferon-free regimens, but that's a discussion that you really have to have with, with the patient. Um, and we hope to have more information with regards to acute infection. I suspect later in the day you'll see some data of um, use of triple therapies in acute, but at this point in time, given... What you're looking at more is shortening the course of therapy, but there's a huge cost attached to that, you know, 12-week cut in treatment. It's hard to argue from a cost-effectiveness standpoint um, that, that you would use anything other than PEG and RIBA at this time. Yes, sir. So, if you had a patient where they said That is what I would, yes, and that is the standard of care at this point in time. So in, it, that's it. Now, that's a great question. But in an in in HIV-infected patient, 24 weeks. Yeah. So it's the same. So the treatment for 2, 3, 1, 4, 5, 6 is, is, is 24 weeks. Great question. Dual. Yeah, so there's, there's actually great data, right? So for interferon alone, but generally the standard, and certainly in, a, in, a, in an HIV-infected patient, I would argue the standard would be to do PEG-and-RIBA. Um, but, but, but you can actually absolutely achieve very nice cure rates with interferon alone. Yes, yes, that is absolutely true. Great questions. All right. So, so now let's just talk quickly about the, the DAAs. 
Um, so it's, I think it's very interesting to look at this really nice timeline of HCV and, and, and think about the differences um, with HIV. So if you think about HCV as a whole, the virus was identified as previously non-A9B was identified as HCV in 1989. Um, and it was not until 1999 that scientists in the lab had the ability to look at the complete viral life cycle uh, because of the limitations of being able to use this virus to infect cell lines in the, in the lab. And, and even now, our cell lines are hepatoma cell lines, which are cancer cell lines, which I'm sure you would all um, argue are not great correlates for a normal healthy hepatocyte. Um, and it wasn't until 2005 that we actually had the ability um, to take an actual virus, which was a, the, the fulminant Japanese hepatitis virus, which was from a patient with genotype 2 infection in Japan, and infect these hepatoma cell lines and actually see full replication. Um, and so this was a major limitation to the ability to then develop direct-acting antivirals. So if you look at this timeline as compared to HIV, AIDS, the clinical disease, was defined in 1982, HIV, the virus, in 84. The first direct-acting antiretroviral came three years later. Whereas for HCV, it took us two decades, um, which is quite impressive. All right, so a quick focus on the phase two studies, and, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but to point out some very specific things here. So this is the phase two of bosepivir, which was the SPRINT1, telapivir were the PROVE studies. So if you look at the bosepivir, there are a couple things that I want to point out. So standard of care was 48 weeks of PEG and RIBA. Um, and what we have here is the length of treatment and design, and then here we have the response rates, the SVR rates. Which, um, and, and so if you look at this, the two things to point out are these little green bars, which were what we call lead-in phases. And what uh, occurred here was that there was a, there was a hypothesis that um, if you gave someone a lead-in phase with pagan riba, dropped their viral load, say by a log, and then added on your DAA, you had less risk of resistance occurring, right? Because now you had a lower viral load. Um, and so there was a theory that that may indeed improve um, response rates and have fewer breakthroughs and, and fewer uh, uh, you know, rates of resistance. And indeed, if you look at the patients who got a full 48 weeks of treatment, um, there appeared to be a difference. So this is why bosepivir moved forward in phase three, and now the standard in using bosepivir is a lead-in phase of PEG and RIBA um, prior to initiating the bosepivir. Now, interestingly, they've done some really nice kinetic work that I know Dr. Kim will be showing you all later that suggests that you can actually use that lead-in phase to even make decisions on, one, whether they need a DAA, or two, whether they should get a DAA. Um, and so it's become very helpful clinically to help us make decisions. Now, just on a side, telaprevir, the FDA did then ask uh, Vertex to study the lead-in phase with telaprevir, and that was done in phase three. And there was no difference, but there also was no harm. And so some people will use a lead-in, although it's off-label, um, even with telaprevir, to understand how they're going to tolerate the treatment, especially in patients with severe liver disease, um, a quote-unquote stress test, if you will, and also to make some of these medical decisions as opposed to then just putting them on a drug that's going to cost anywhere from thirty dollars to $50,000 for that, uh, that treatment course. The other important thing to see is that they did look at shortened courses of therapy right off the bat, so 28 weeks of treatment. And what you can see here is although that was not as good as 48 weeks, it was clearly better than the standard of care. And so over half of patients were cured with, with half the therapy length. So it became very clear that you could shorten treatment for some. And the question became, how do you make those decisions? And that's where response-guided therapy came in. So now if we look at telaprevir um, and their studies, there are a couple things to point out here. Um, so if you look at this arm right here, this was the first attempt at ribavirin sparing. The idea that, well, now that we have this other drug, do we even need ribavirin? I think there was clear understanding that with monotherapy and rapid resistance, you had to have that, that, that backbone of interferon. But the question was, does ribavirin even play a role when you have this DAA? And as you can see, telaprevir and, and, and PEG for 12 weeks was actually inferior to the standard of care. This is all based on viral breakthrough, and all, a majority of these patients had resistance. So clearly the ribavirin was doing something to this patient population. Interestingly, if you look at 12 weeks of telaprevir, PEG, and riba here, 35% of patients achieved cure. So although this was not you know, better than the standard of care and therefore was not part of the decision-making and moving forward to phase three, what we, however, learned was that there are 35% of patients who can be cured from their hep C in 12 weeks. 
And this was the first sign that, that you know, we can shorten these courses at least for some patients, and now really it's trying to understand how short is, it, can we go, you know, and can, can we cure someone in six weeks, can we cure someone in eight. And we do know that that's happened. We've had patients who got six weeks of therapy, couldn't tolerate, came off, and it never came back. And so, so, so you know, they've now looked back at this, and these patients primarily carried the IL-28CC genotype. Um, and so there were some predictors there that would said that these patients could be cured in a very short period of time. So, so we learned a lot, I think, from these early phase two studies that have really helped folks understand how to move forward with interferon-inclusive and interferon-free uh, treatments. So, so moving into phase three and what we now really have as the standard of care for treatment is that we use response-guided therapy for both of these drugs. Um, that with telaprevir, it's included in the first 12 weeks of treatment. And then the, the tail is Pagan-Riba. Whereas with bosepravir, um, you're using somewhere between 24 to 36 to 44 weeks, depending on your patient population. Um, and that for now, ribavirin is included. Um, and, and that's the way that goes. Uh, but, but I think maybe will not be that way forever. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we only have a few minutes left. And I know that this is going to come up again. I know you have access to these. And really, this is more to show you as, as a resource. This is... The, the futility rules or stopping rules for these drugs, they are different depending on which drug you choose to use, as are the response-guided therapy criteria because of the lead-in phase, right? So if you're looking at telaprevir, you're going to be using a ERVR to make a decision on response-guided therapy by weeks 4 and 12, shortening your therapy to 24 or 48 weeks. Um, and the stopping rules are at week 4, if your patient has a viral load over 1,000, stop. They're going to develop resistance, they're going to break through, they're not responding to treatment, or at week 12, similar, and by week 24, they must be undetectable. Bosepravir, again, slightly different. Because of the lead-in, ERVR is defined by week 8 and 24 undetectable. Um, and again, response-guided therapy is 28 versus 48, um, and in a patient who meets that criteria, it's 28 versus 48, and if you don't meet response-guided therapy criteria, you actually end bosepravir at 36 weeks, but you go 48 with the PEG-RIBA. So it's confusing. I don't expect you to be able to, this is not going to be your end of the, uh, end of the uh, review uh, question. But I think the point is, make sure you have a resource like this to use so that you can pull it out and look at it to kind of remind yourself of what you need to do for your patients. Stopping rules are, again, different. It's a viral load of a over 100 by week 12 and undetectable by week 24. Any questions about, about those? So I just wanted to touch on the IL-28 um, thing very quickly, only because it is, I think, scientifically interesting, if nothing else, at this point, although you, you may hear through the day that um, given, given the regimen, their IL-28 may still matter and be predictive, although overall, from a clinical standpoint, um, it probably is used uh, variably across centers and across providers. Um, it, it, so, um, so the first description of this polymorphism was... Um, was actually by a group at Duke, um, and, uh, and Dr. Solkowski was actually uh, one of the investigators uh, for the ideal cohort that was used to develop this, and then ultimately was confirmed, as all good science needs to be, by two independent cohorts, both in Australia and Japan. So what this shows, they used the ideal, the ideal cohort, which was a huge randomized control trial of only genotype 1 patients who were all getting therapy with Pagan Riba. Their outcomes were very clear. Cure or not cure. So this is the nice way to do genetic um, studies. And what they identified was that there are multiple single-based single pair changes in the human genome that predicts whether or not you will respond to HCV interferon-based therapy. Um, and that this localized to the IL-28B gene region. So if you look at what this meant, if you carried the recessive allele times two as a homozygote, so what we call the favorable alleles versus the unfavorable, regardless of your ethnicity or race, you had a significantly improved chance of achieving cure. Um, and so this is SVR here. So you can see a significant difference. As a matter of fact, if you look, that a patient of African descent with the favorable allele had an improved response over a patient of European descent with the unfavorable. And what we now know is that this explained 50% in the variation in responses to peg therapies that I showed you earlier, um, which is very nice to be able to understand why that is. 
Um, we don't understand the other 50%, but it may well be other genetics and other factors that we just don't have the ability to test for. Yes? Yes. So this is then a nice study done by Dr. Thomas at um, Hopkins and cohorts of acute infection that showed that it also predicts spontaneous clearance um, by odds ratios around three. So that's exactly right. And some people will choose to use this as a marker to make a decision on starting a patient with acute infection earlier. If they are unfavorable, then they just start treating them regardless of how long it's been. If they're favorable, they let them go 12 weeks to see if they can spontaneously clear. So these are some ways that these markers can be used. This test is available clinically um, and uh, costs somewhere around $300. And this was true in HIV infection as well. And so um, we have one minute left. I can talk very, very fast. Um, so the one interesting thing about this is that this location in the human genome um, made a lot of sense because this localized to the interferon um, uh, uh, lambda region, which is a type 3 interferon, which is a critical interferon in our innate response to viral infections, influenza, and HCV. So it made a ton of sense and um, basically was very similar to the role that interferon alpha that we give exogenously also um, plays in, in developing that, that immune response and getting the immune system to start fighting. So the only thing, uh, actually I covered this up and I apologize, but so, so we now also have data that was published in Nature within the past year showing that this is possibly um, a gene change that results in production of a new interferon called interferon lambda 4 that appears to indeed be detrimental to the carrier. Um, and so the science of this is still in the works, uh, but it's been a very exciting time in terms of trying to, to follow and understand some of the human innate immunity and, and response to the infection as well as the, the treatments that we use with interferon. And I think for the sake of time, the only other thing I wanted to introduce was that the ITPA gene was also another gene that they did the same exact study with a different outcome, severity of anemia, and indeed found that there was another change, a single base pair nucleotide polymorphism, that could also predict severity of anemia. But this has not really played out as well in terms of medical management because we have not been able to show that carrying this gene or not carrying this gene makes a difference in your response rate or anything of that sort. It actually can predict whether or not you have dose reduction of ribavirin, which we now know really doesn't predict your ability to achieve a cure. And so it's been fun and interesting, but has not played a significant role in any way in terms of uh, medical management. And so lastly, the question is, what does sustained virologic response mean for your patient? Why are we so eager to cure everyone? And that's because we know that in patients who achieve a cure, they have much improved liver disease-related outcomes and mortality as compared to the folks who do not achieve a cure, who do not get treatment. Um, and that's very clear for HCC, for end-stage liver disease, for liver transplant, and for mortality. So, so although SVR is a surrogate marker that we use in clinical trials, it clearly predicts improved clinical response rates and fewer complications from their liver disease. Um, and I think it's very nice as, as, as treaters and clinicians to be able to, ha to know that, that we're actually doing something that's, that's improving our, our patient's quality of life and as well as their longevity. And so with that, I will close. If you would please take your test again. Um, and I will open that up for you all. You're going to get 100%. 88.5. The other 11.5 were asleep. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So the answer is that this is a clinical test of treatment response. I was a very tricky in saying that a research test of spontaneous clearance, but technically, as I said, you can use it for both. I mean, it is a clinical test. It is now clinically available, as I said, through several um, core labs, um, although, again, it's expensive, and you really have to sit and think about whether or not it's going to make a significant difference in your medical management before you spend the dollars on, on the test. So um, with that, I think we actually do have um, some time, uh, about 10 minutes for, for additional questions if folks are interested. Yes? I didn't get paid for that. Okay.
So that's a, oh, I can. So the question is with, I, I, I'm going to summarize the question. You tell me if I summarize appropriately. So in patients that are very difficult to treat in terms of their lack of social resources, being homeless, having mental illness, et cetera, um, how are centers, research centers in particular, um, and you're kind of saying this specific to research trials, but maybe just treatment period, how are we going to attempt to get these very patients who clearly are high risk and um, maybe need treatment more than others access to the drugs? And it is going to be very, um, very center, and I actually think very um, provider dependent. Um, we do, uh, at Duke, um, have experience in terms of treating patients who are homeless. In our HIV clinic in particular, we have phenomenal social work resources. And so we have worked in many ways with um, case managers who have, you know, refrigerators and things like this who can help our patients in terms of managing uh, their treatments. Um, in clinical trials, that is a little bit trickier, so I'm not sure that I could say that we've had homeless patients in clinical trials. But we've all done it with HIV. Um, and we know that we have homeless patients who take their HIV medicines and do well. Um, the nice thing is that um, when, when interferon is out of the picture, which requires refrigeration, which has been a major limitation and was a limitation for our patients with ritonavir, that I think will be a bigger, another big hurdle. I can tell you that there's clearly there's data that says that you can treat these patients and they can do well. Um, and so we do have experiences at multiple centers around the country who have done this and done it well. Um, and I think that, generally speaking, we need to do everything we can to get the most needy patients access. Um, and I think the access is going to be more related to how do we get the drugs. I mean, those patients are highly unlikely to have, to have um, or hopefully maybe they would have Medicaid um, or, or, or Medicare. And if that's the case, generally speaking, that is obviously in many ways state-based. Some states' Medicaid have been very good about paying for these drugs um, for patients, even off-label, and some states have not. So I, I think in some way, as a provider, you can make it happen. The limitation may more be on the side of getting the, ac getting the access to the drugs. But I think it's a phenomenal question. And will everybody be treated? <laughs> so, okay, so now you're just going to get my opinion. Where did you, where'd that come from? Oh, there you opinion. You know, I, I, you guys should ask folks during the day what they think. I mean, I, um, I mean I'm an ID-trained uh, clinician, so I, of course, believe that everyone should be cured of a viral infection. That being said, there's reality. Um, you know, if we say that 75% of the people in this country that had the disease were born between 1945 and 65, the majority of them no longer have the ongoing uh, behaviors that got them the infection to begin with. And if those patients at the age in their, in their 60s do not have evidence of significant liver disease, I guess from a financial standpoint, it's hard for me at this point in time to argue that the use of resources is appropriate of giving that person something that's going to cost fifty dollars to $100,000 to cure an infection that is not causing a disease. Can um, you use the microphone, please, if you're going to ask a question from the floor, because but, the people in the back can't hear. But I can I, tell you that that, 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 that that opinion is my opinion and mine alone, and there are people in this room and maybe even on the stage who may feel very differently. My, my hope is that we can get to a point where these drugs don't cost an arm and a leg and we can truly get access to everyone and, and cure everyone who knows they have the virus. But I think as providers, we have to be also cognizant of the cost of what this means um, uh, to our healthcare system. We have a question. Um, do HIV positive patients get the same length of treatment with DAAs as non-HIV positive? Yeah, that is and a We will have a discussion of this yeah, this so, afternoon. So, so I think, I'm sure Dr. Solkowski will cover that, but what I will say is right now, all we, we have only phase two data in co-infection, and that phase two data with bosepivir and telaprevir was only 48 weeks of treatment. They did not invest response-guided therapy because it's phase two. The response-guided therapy um, evaluations are ongoing in the phase three studies for both of those trials, um, for bosepivir and telaprevir. So, so different people do different things again as a, as a treater, and I'm treating a lot of patients with co-infection. If I treat them off-label outside of a clinical trial with PEG, or with bosepivir telaprevir, I am treating them for a year regardless of their treatment responses and who they are because I don't have efficacy data on response-guided treatment. But that's just me. Other providers may do different things. Yes. One of the major limitations for hepatitis C treatment is the accessibility of liver biopsies. Mm -hmm. Some patients can't afford them. Some patients think they're too painful and so on. Is there a non-invasive way that you use to decide who actually is going to progress to liver disease and those who won't? Yeah. So I think this is an amazing, um, if I look at what I've done over the past year. So, so, so I, I trained in a center that's very heavy in liver biopsy. Um, and, and so I was kind of brought up um, 
believing that liver biopsy was kind of the only way. But there's a reality that we use liver biopsy with genotype 1 in particular at a time when therapies were difficult, where cure rates were 40% at best. And so you really needed to stage a patient to determine what the benefit of treatment was. It really played a huge role in risk benefit. We have multiple non-invasive ways of assessing severity of liver disease. We have multiple non-invasive serologic markers, some of which are very expensive and some of which you can calculate from the basic labs that you get on a Q6 or three-month basis. Um, and we also have a non-invasive, now FDA-approved um, uh, radiologic, if you will, um, type of test called the FibroScan, I mean the, the fiber scan, um, or EchoSense, which is a um, probe that tests the stiffness of the liver and can correlate to the severity of fibrosis. All of these non-invasive markers tend to perform very, very well in detecting or, 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 or characterizing a patient as having minimal to no fibrosis or having cirrhosis. They, are, they have difficulty in, in the spectrum in between, differentiating a two from a three in terms of the stage of fibrosis from a, on a zero to four range, four being cirrhosis. That being said, there are a lot of arguments against this. So liver biopsy lacks uh, significantly as a gold standard, and so part of the weaknesses of these tests may well be just because they're being compared to a test that is not perfect. Um, and I think also, ultimately, as time goes on, now what we care about more is do you have cirrhosis or don't you? And these non-invasive tests are excellent at saying, or maybe I should say are very good at saying cirrhosis or no, no cirrhosis. So in one year, my practice has changed from recommending liver biopsy in almost all of my patients who I think meet criteria for treatment to saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stratify you, cirrhosis, no cirrhosis, with a non-invasive marker, and, and then ultimately, if we need to go from there, then we, can, we, then we can do that. But what I really care about now is do you have cirrhosis or not, because that's how I make my decisions on treatment today. Um, because if you don't have cirrhosis, then I, then I don't think you need treatment. It's a great question. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nagy, for an excellent presentation. Thank you.